Welcome to Asking for a Friend, the podcast that covers all those topics you may want to know more about, but might feel a lot of shame in asking. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, speaker, and sexuality researcher. This week's episode is sponsored by And Bam. Erectile dysfunction can be awkward to talk about, which makes it more challenging to treat. And Bam connects you with the doctor, and if suitable, ships prescription treatment plans discreetly to your door. So you can stop whispering erectile dysfunction at the pharmacy counter. Visit andbam.care, that's A-N-D-B-A-M dot C-A-R-E, and use the code Katrina at checkout for a 50 Rand doctor's consult and 30% off your first shipment. So it's now four seasons into asking for a friend. And honestly, the more conversations that I have and the more guests that I speak to, the more passionate I become about this little passion project that I started in 2020 that I had wanted to launch for a long time before that. Just nothing like a global pandemic to give you a kick up the ass. And yet now four seasons in, this passion project has reached so many people, despite still being, you know, a minuscule podcast in comparison to other people's. But that doesn't matter to me because when I hear from one person that an episode, a guest, a topic really hit home for them, really changed something for them, it keeps motivating me to record amazing episodes and speaking to fantastic people and to be talking about topics that we really need to be talking more openly about. This season in particular, with a lot of the the range and, and kind of or the, the length and breadth of topics that I've covered, I've had a lot of conversations throughout my time recording it, and it's taken me a long time to get through this season for many reasons, um, both recording with my guests and, and editing and publishing the episodes. But I've consistently had the realization of how we need to be speaking more openly, more frequently, more comfortably about certain topics that relate to sex, gender, reproductive health, and so on. So I have so many ambitions for the future of this little podcast and of the types of topics I want to cover. I always want to hear from you, my listeners, about things you would like me to ask about for a friend. And I feel so, so, so grateful that I have connections far and wide to experts in all sorts of different types of areas in the field of sex, gender, relationships, uh, mental health, and so on. And so here we are, another season coming to a close. And I want to obviously speak to the, the five questions that I receive that I want to, to give you some answers to. But just first, a, a huge thank you to my guests from the season. It's been an honor and a privilege to spend some time getting to learn from you because this is always a learning process for me as well. And thank you for your patience. This, As I said, this podcast took a little bit longer than expected. And I hope that for you, my listeners, it's been an exciting, interesting, enlightening journey to go on with me. And, you know, I have no doubt that not every single episode may speak to you and, and the kind of topics that you're interested in knowing. But like I said, if there is something you specifically want to know, reach out to me so that I can plan to have that as a topic on my seasons coming uh, in the future. So let's dive in 
to the five questions that I'm going to be answering in this little Q&A episode. So the first question, I get super wet. Sometimes I get shy about it. Is it normal? I know men love it, but I worry. So from this person's message, I think that this is somebody who uh, has a vulva and somebody who is interested in people of the opposite sex being men. And generally the main concern here is, am I getting too physically aroused? So lubricated, am I getting too wet? It's a really interesting question because I guess it's one, there is, there's a theoretical answer and two, there's a, a emotive answer here. So let's just talk about the theoretical answer. The fact that your body is showing clear signs of physiological arousal is a very good thing, right? That's great. That's what we want. And not everybody with a vagina is going to show such clear signs of physiological arousal. Now, just because you are showing signs of physiological arousal doesn't mean you want to have sex. So just as, you know, somebody with a penis, if they get an erection, it's not a clear indication that they want to have sex. Them saying or feeling or indicating they want to have sex is their psychological arousal. That is them saying they want to have sex. But it's the same with somebody with a vagina. If they are getting lubricated, it is not directly correlated to your desire to have sex. It's merely a physiological response in the body. So that's the first thing. So great that you're getting physiologically aroused. I hope that that is correlated for you to psychologically being aroused and wanting to have sex. Now, in my profession, there is a little saying, we say wetter is better, and lube is definitely your friend, um, because a lot of people with vaginas need to use a lubricant during any type of sex, whether that's, you know, on their own for some, some external play or some internal play, or they need to use it when they're having partnered sex, because their body doesn't respond physiologically as well as or as much as they would like, or their body may take a little bit of time to catch up to their mind. You know, the desire that's happening in their brain is going, yes, please, yes, please. But the body's like, mm, on a little bit of a go slow. And there are a lot of things that can affect that. So wetter is better, whether that is naturally or whether that is through the use of something like a lubricant. When, I guess, you're experiencing this, sometimes some people find that they are too wet. And this can make penetration feel a little less intense. And so I think, you know, with this person's question, they're saying, I get shy about it. I think it's important to understand what is it that makes you feel uncomfortable or shy, because it is a very normal response in the body. Some people with vaginas do tend to get more aroused and wet physiologically and lubricated and others tend to get less wet depends on the time of the month depends on the medication you take depends on the context depends on the relationship there's so many factors and if if men the partners that you're with are really loving it you know where is your distress lying is just is it feeling abnormal is it feeling like your your body's producing too much you know if this is something that does kind of take away from the sensation of pleasure. So if it makes you, if you find that it's a little bit less intense when there's penetration, then you should probably be focusing on other areas of your body or other ways that you experience pleasure. Because interestingly, what we know from research, and if you listen to my episode with Dr. Laurie Mintz in season three, 
there, you will know that somebody with a vagina, less than 1% of cisgendered women will experience pleasure internally. So actually, your pleasure is coming from an external source, most likely, and that is the clitoris. And the clitoris is not where lubrication takes place, but the clitoris needs lubrication. I don't know about the exact stats, but I think that there are there are not that many people with a clitoris who would like dry touch on their clitoris. They would like some lubrication, and you can use some of your own natural lubrication to lubricate that area when you pleasure yourself. So I think for you, if you do get shy about it, try and redirect your focus to other parts of your body that bring you pleasure. But if the partners that you are with are enjoying it, then great. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fantastic. I guess you have got to be the one here who is comfortable with it. And own it, right? Own the fact that your body is saying, I am on board with this. And try and obviously make sure that your mind is aligned with that saying, I want this as well. So let's move on to question two. I never want sex anymore. What can I do to change this? This is a very complicated question to answer. I don't know anything about you. I don't know your history. I don't know your medical concerns. I don't know your relationship, your kind of stresses in life and so on. So I'm going to have to answer very broadly here. And I do want to encourage you to listen to some other podcast episodes that I have done on sexual desire, including um, the last guest episode on this season um, with Dr. Kristen Mark called The Science of Sexual Desire. And then also an episode I've done with Dr. Christopher Fox um, on understanding the realities of sexual desire. And I want to encourage you to seek out psychosexual therapy as well. But let's speak to this very broadly, this not wanting to have sex anymore. So saying that makes me, it kind of gives me the impression that you did want sex before and now you don't want it. Now I don't know if that was with a previous partner and now with your current partner, you're not interested. I don't know if you're single or you're in a relationship. I don't know if that was with your partner and now you don't want it. So like I said, there's a lot of stuff that's very difficult for me to answer specifically. So here's a little broad overview. Sexual desire is not just a biological experience. It is not just a drive. A drive is something that helps us to survive, like hunger, like thirst, like thermoregulation, and so on. Sex is not like that. This is not a, dem a demand supply issue. The less sex we have, the less sex we desire. The more sex we have, the more sex we desire. Something like hunger we feel hungry so we eat and then we experience less hunger because of that we feel thirsty so we drink and so we experience less thirst because of that sex does all the desire for sex doesn't work in the same way we will not die if we do not have sex right i don't care how many cisgendered men are going to say to me oh blue balls and whatever you will not die if you do not have sex it's just a simple matter of fact no one has ever died from not having sex and please go and listen to my episode with dr Kristen mark on the science of sexual desire to actually understand the nuances around this but our desire for sex it it is a very biopsychosocial experience bio being biological a physiological experience psychological that's a psycho what is happening for us in our mind and in our psyche and social what's going on in our relationship what's happening in our life and stresses and work and our families it is very much a mind body environment 
culture, religion experience that takes place. And because of this, we talk very often, or should I say, I will speak, and I know my colleagues will do the same, we speak very often about how crucial one's context is to, to, to cultivating desire. And by that I mean not just the environmental context, the physical context around you, but I mean the psychological context you find yourself in, the relationship context. If you're in the midst of a global pandemic, and you and your partner are fighting non-stop and you are experiencing immense burnout from work and you're worried about a family member not a great context for wanting sex right the brain does not pick up on that as an inviting context so the context matters if you and your partner have been having a difficult time lately then the context of that is going to impact um, on your interest in sex so from your question, I never want sex anymore. It, it tells me that it was there before, your desire for sex, but it, it isn't now. So my question, I guess, back to you is, was it there before and now isn't? And is this a pattern for you in relationships? Have you noticed throughout your life that different relationships have had the same pattern where you're interested at first and then you lose interest? Because that pattern is something that perhaps needs to be, needs to be addressed. You know, what is the relationship uh, quality like? Because very often our desire for sex can act as a little bit of a barometer for how we're feeling in the relationship. Not always, but it's one of the things. Or it can act as a barometer to give us an indication of how we are coping in day-to-day -day life. As I said, if, if you've got one partner who's super stressed out, who's trying to meet deadlines, who's trying to support a family, who's trying to raise children, who, you know, whatever it may be, has financial difficulties, work stresses, job insecurity, you name it. All of that stuff can affect sexual desire. Now, it doesn't in everybody. There are some people who will turn towards sex when they're feeling a high level of stress. But the reason that they have sex is different. And again, there are a lot of episodes where I speak to the motivations for sex, where I speak to the context around desire, arousal, and so on. And I really encourage you to, to read up and learn a little bit about it. Um, then the other thing I think that's helpful for, for me to just just touch on briefly that again is spoken to in many episodes particularly in my episode with Emily Nagoski on um, sex and stress uh, is, is the difference between spontaneous and responsive desire so let me explain it like this so spontaneous desire is what we actually all think desire should be like we think that we should want sex out of nowhere spontaneously and we've got to want it at the same amount that our partner wants it at the exact same moment it is just unrealistic it's not going to happen and for 99 percent of people if they expect that their desire should be there before they engage in sex you're going to have a very hard time waiting around for your desire to be there when you can engage in sex you know sitting at your desk at work you may auto like you know all of a sudden out of nowhere feel like sex can you have sex in that moment no is your partner available to you probably not is it okay that you you know removing yourself from the work day to go and have sex with your partner well that's debatable but the chances are that when you have a spontaneous you know experience of wanting sex you're not going to be able to have it what is more likely is that you're going to experience something called responsive desire. And responsive desire is you experiencing desire 
in response to something you see, something you hear, something you do, like sex. So let me put it to you this way. This is a metaphor that I always use. It's an action leading to motivation equation rather than a motivation leading to action. If you had to feel like going to the gym in order to do your workout, chances are most people would never get a workout in because they don't feel like going to the gym when they know they need to do a workout, but they do it anyway. They get up, they go, they get it done. And maybe halfway through the workout, maybe at the end of the workout, they feel great. And they say to themselves, sure, that was really good. And, you know, I should definitely do that again tomorrow. I feel motivated. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. Tomorrow comes, no motivation to do it. And again, it's about negotiating with yourself to get up, go to the gym, get a workout in. The more that you do something, the, the, the higher the chances of feeling motivated to do it. And it's the same with sexual desire. And so responsive sexual desire is that like going to the gym that you feel like the workout and you feel good from the workout only once you've done it. Very often this is what happens with sexual desire. That once you are having sex, then you will start to feel like it. You do not have to feel like sex in order to have it. We think we do promise you that that's not the the it's not the truth of the matter so being aware that desire for sex is very rarely spontaneous very very rarely and the two people coming together in a in a couple or more in a throuple or whatever dynamic you have in your relationship you're going to have varying levels and degrees of desire for sex and so you cannot be waiting for this you know kaboom this spontaneous desire to both hit you at the exact same time and porn and movies don't help us believe that actually desire is in response to something and then I think just finally it's it's very difficult to make obviously specific suggestions as you said what can I do to change this it's very difficult for me to make those specific suggestions without knowing your personal history but I think what I've just said could help you in that there may be a need for not waiting for desire to have sex, but having sex anyway, because it will come up when you're already having it. Perhaps assessing what's happening in your life, in your relationship, the context in which you expect desire to come about. You know, are you dealing with some stuff at work? Is there relationship dissatisfaction? Are you feeling the type of sex that you're having isn't meeting your needs anymore? What are the elements of this that could be contributing to your lack, lack of interest or lost interest in having sex? Again, I want to reiterate something that I said in my episode with Dr. Kristen Mark. I tend to stay away talking about one partner is having low desire and the other partner is having high desire because then we can pathologize the person who doesn't really feel like sex that much and that's not helpful because are we going to ask the person who wants more sex why they aren't changing their desire for sex so I think for you I would encourage you to seek out some support from a psychosexual therapist and to just perhaps be quite curious about what's going on for you and if it does help there's also a fantastic book by a colleague of mine Dr. Karen Gurney called Mind the Gap How to Future Proof Your Sex Life and a lot of the information that I've just shared with you is also shared in her book and it's a, a really valuable resource. Okay, question number three. Are sex toys degrading towards men? So I'm going to give you my opinion here, personal and professional. I guess this is going to, you know, ruffle feathers in some 
people's minds. I don't know, I guess we'll see how it goes. But in my opinion, no, sex toys are not degrading to men at all. If anything, they only enhance a sexual experience. Someone with a clitoris and a vagina actually needs extra stimulation during penetrative sex. They need it because the way that our bodies unfortunately are put together means that when penetrative sex takes place, they don't fit as well together as we would like them to from a pleasure perspective. From a mechanical perspective, they fit together very well. But from a mutual pleasure perspective, they do not. So somebody with a penis whose partner has a vagina, mechanically they fit well together. Or somebody who's got a penis whose partner's got an anus, again, they fit well together. But the parts of the body that experience pleasure, such as the penis or such as the clitoris, they're going to be completely missed out. And so that is going to decrease one person's pleasure. And as I said in answering a previous question, people with a vagina, less than 1% of people with a vagina are getting their reliable source of pleasure from internal stimulation. So sex toys can really help to enhance somebody's pleasure during a partnered experience. And actually, most people who have a clitoris are going to use a sex toy when they pleasure themselves and at the very least they're going to be using their hands because that is most of the time their most reliable way to orgasm and then if i if i think about queer couples they frequently use toys to enhance pleasure and play and i think i've said this before on a podcast and i'll reiterate it here again but i think that there's so much that heterosexual people could learn from queer couples because heterosexual people generally have a far more prescriptive narrative around sex we get far more kind of directive messages around sex than than queer couples do so queer couples have a greater sense of freedom and play when it comes to their sex lives and i think we could we could learn from that i um i saw a wonderful um, series of images that Lily O'Farrell, who's um, on Instagram um, at on Instagram with under the handle Vulgar Drawings, she posted about this a while ago, and it, it, she offers up some great comparisons. Saying that sex toys is degrading towards men is like saying that that sending WhatsApps isn't helpful and that you'd rather use a messenger pigeon. You can just think of sex toys as a piece of technology. It's just a piece of technology that has enhanced our ability to engage with aspects of life and this particular aspect is pleasure. You know, they're not there to replace anyone or anything. A toy is there to enhance the experience, you know, to make it easier, particularly for people with uh, a clitoris. So if it makes pleasure better for you and your partner, then it's an absolute win. And also for men, I'm assuming you're talking about, you know, people with a penis, and people who identify as men, it can also take a lot of pressure off you in trying to focus so heavily on, on pleasing your partner. Please don't do this. Anybody listening, doesn't matter your gender orientation, your sexual identity, who you sleep with, it doesn't matter. You need to take responsibility for your own sexual pleasure and stop fussing so much about your partners. Let them be responsible for theirs and you be responsible for yours. As soon as you place pressure on yourself to make your partner come, 
goodness, not only is that going to be extremely like anxiety-provoking and possibly like stressful for you, but it's going to be even more anxiety-provoking and stressful for them. Everybody needs to take responsibility for their own sexual pleasure. So bringing a sex toy into the mix, particularly as a heterosexual couple, can really alleviate some of the pressure you might feel to bring your partner pleasure. But then let me end off this question with kind of one one well one question i want to ask you to ask yourself what it might be about bringing a sex toy into your sexual play with a partner that makes you feel less than and where do you think that thinking came from and has what i've just shared helped you challenge that thought at all so be curious why is it that i might think that sex toys are degrading to men where have i heard that before is that a helpful narrative for me? Just be curious about where that's coming from. And I do hope that what I've shared has helped shift that somewhat. Then the fourth question. I struggle with pain during sex. I can use tampons and work with a physio to manage this on my own. But as soon as a man comes near me, I freak out. Why can't I get over this? Okay, so again, sounds like we've got a cisgender woman who's interested in men. And this is so normal. So... I work predominantly with cisgender women who experience unwanted sexual pain, doing my doctorate on it at the moment. And this is a very, very common issue that a lot of clients come to see me with. This is when they get referred to me because they've had very good results when they see a physiotherapist and they do the physical therapy to overcome the kind of physiological responses in their body, the way their central nervous system is responding to penetration and things like that, whether it's with a tampon or a gynecological speculum, a toy, a dilator, a penis, whatever is causing the kind of tensing up and the pain that they're experiencing in their genital region. This is very often when the physio may refer the client to me because the client's saying, I can use dilators, I can use tampons. What is happening when my partner comes near me and it's a really common issue that i see with dilators with your physio with a tampon it's an inanimate object right and it's an inanimate object that you learn to have complete control over so you are engaging with the tampon the dilator and so on on your own terms in your own way and that sense of control can obviously be really useful to overcoming a sense of being out of control, which is causing anxiety, which is causing that fear, pain, tension cycle. As soon as you add a human being onto the end of that apparatus, and that apparatus actually becomes a, an organ, a penis, then there may be a, an increase in anxiety around that loss of control again that you may have had prior to using tampons you may never have had before. So there's a couple of things that I would I would suggest that somebody like this can do. The first is that if you can use tampons, that's great. Keep using tampons, okay? If you worked with a physio, then you probably would have used dilators. Now, when I'm working with a client who's on a dilation program to overcome unwanted and kind of involuntary sexual pain, I try and get the partners involved quite early on and involved being they are nearby, they are in the room, they are assisting, they are holding a dilator when the woman is doing her dilation. 
So they are part of this process. When I send my clients podcasts and things on TV to watch and readings and audiobooks, I'm wanting the partner to listen to them as well. I want the partner to be as much a part of the process as the woman is engaging in the process. And that's because this is not just her problem and what's going on for her, right? Yes, her body is responding in a particular way, but very often the dynamic between the couple can also be impacting her her response in her body, right? What she kind of, the sense of failure that she might feel, he might feel a sense of failure, there's pressure to have children and, and so on. So there's a lot that can be happening. So for me, it's about getting the partner involved early. So if you've never done that and it feels really daunting to you, something that you could do is, is, is you know, if you're going to dilate um, and you, you do it, let's say, in your bedroom or your bathroom, is to have your partner sit with the door open just outside the door with their back to the door and you can talk to them while you dilate and you go about the routine that you go about with your dilation, but just have them there in your kind of in your vision, but with their back to you. And then maybe they could move into the room again, still with their back to you. They could put the chair in the room or they could be closer. Then maybe they could sit next to you. So maybe you sit against the bath um, or maybe you sit on the toilet um, and they can sit against the, the basin and the cupboards or up in bed against the headboard and they can sit up, 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 up at the headboard with you. And they just are in the room with you just to gradually and very slowly help you get used to them being there. And obviously then we want to work through to the point where they are holding the dilator and on your instruction, again, you can start with your hand on the dilator and their hand on top of yours and then their hand on the dilator and then your hand on top of theirs and then their hand on the dilator entirely, where they're following your instruction and it's happening on your terms and feels within your control. So really gradually, slowly introducing your partner. When it comes to penetrative sex, there are fantastic uh, sexual aids out there that can actually help you navigate through penetrative sex on your terms, again, as the woman. So something like the O-Nut, which is just the most brilliant product. I can't even begin to explain to you how how in, like, ingenious this product is. And the woman who developed it, developed it out of the need for pain-free intercourse because she was experiencing pain on penetration and it is a stackable device or a stack it's a stackable set of rings they're kind of beautifully um, rubberized I think they're made out of like a super soft like silicon that stretches wide they come in varying colors they come in some I think they come in different sizes but they come in varying colors and essentially the penis owning partner would wear as many of these O-nuts stacked up on his penis as he needs to so that the depth of penetration can be managed and so the female partner can feel more in control and that there isn't going to be you know full depth of penetration and slowly and surely you can remove one O-nut at a time meaning that penetration can be a little bit deeper each and every time but again it's on your terms. This is also a fantastic um, sexual aid if you want to explore anal play but you need to go very slowly because the onad acts as a buffer to penetration it kind of like a stopper and a very gentle one at that and a very comfortable one you know a lot of penis owners actually find it really enjoyable to wear the onad because it also acts as a little bit of constriction obviously depending on the size of your penis a little bit of constriction so it can make your erection a little bit harder depending on your size in comparison to the onad so again for anal play it can be a great uh, a, a 
addition, I suppose, in learning to go slowly, to navigate a little bit of depth, a little bit at a time. So even for queer couples, this is a great thing to try. You can also do this as um, a same-sex female couple with a strap-on if you're helping your partner to overcome sexual pain with penetration. So I would recommend trying something like that. I have no affiliation to own it. I just think that they are an outstanding, outstanding product. But please know that this is really normal. And it, it, much like with the dilation program you would have been on or using getting to use tampons, it's going to take time. A big part of it is feeling like you're in control. And a big part of that is safety and trust. So really around developing that sense of safety and trust in the sexual relationship because for a lot of women with unwanted sexual pain, the body is screaming at you that sex is unsafe and you need to feel safe when you are engaging sexually with your partner. And then the fifth and final question, and this is one I get probably one to two emails a month minimum, um, and I wanted to address in a, in a podcast episode, which I'm finally going to do now. I want to become a sexologist. How do I do this? I'm in my first year at university and thinking I should probably change what I'm studying. This person didn't give me an indication of what they're studying, but so, wow, this is a question I'm going to need some time to answer, but I'm going to give you the whistle stop tour on how to do that. Becoming a sexologist is going to be one dependent on your background uh, in terms of what kind of foundational training um, and qualifications you have. And two, it's going to depend where in the world you are. And I know this because I have been many places in the world, fortunately, and it is a lot easier to become a sexologist in certain parts of the world than it is in others like South Africa. So this question did come from someone in South Africa. So I'll speak to that first. Unfortunately, there is nowhere in South Africa, and I will reiterate this, there is nowhere in South Africa that you can do postgraduate training to become a sexologist. It does not exist there is nowhere accredited at, at university level, doesn't exist. There are short courses. I've had um, My Sexual Health and the Sexology Training Club sponsor a lot of episodes in this season. And that is one place that healthcare providers, um, people working in the field, sex educators, coaches, and so on, can gain knowledge and um, expertise in working with particular difficulties. But it is not a way to become a sexologist. Other countries in the world, I studied in Australia, um, you know, I work in the UK, they offer qualifications, university accredited and led qualifications in psychosexual therapy or sex therapy and so on. So depending where on where in the world you are, you may have access to be able to study at a postgraduate level or not. But again, that comes with a cost. And it comes with the ability to do so once you've got the foundational degrees. Now, foundations that you might need in order to become a sexologist. So there are lots of sexologists, kind of like an umbrella term for somebody who is a specialist in sex. Right. Um, I'm a clinical sexologist, meaning I work clinically with people. I see people in person to work therapeutically. And I am known as a psychosexual therapist in the United Kingdom. In the US, you might, you might call me a sex therapist. And in South Africa and in Australia, where I qualified, I'm, I'm known as a clinical sexologist. Now, there are different kind, of, uh, different kind of foundations for being a sexologist. So you could be a doctor who's then gone and done specialist postgraduate training. 
you could be a nurse, you could be somebody who works in public health, a social worker, a psychologist, a counsellor, you could be an educator and a researcher. So there are a lot of different tracks that you can go down in terms of the foundational qualification that you have that will enable you to then go and do a postgraduate course in in human sexuality, psychosexual therapy, sexual medicine and so on. If you want to become a sexologist, you need to have that foundation. So your undergraduate at university needs to be in medicine or public health or social work or psychology or counseling or research. And if you don't get that and like that foundation, you're going to have a hard time because you need the skills to be a sexologist, the, the foundational skills. I, I couldn't be a sexologist without the foundational skills of psychotherapy. And I practice as a psychotherapist, you know, almost as much as I do as a sex therapist. So you're going to need to have your undergraduate and postgraduate in those foundations. So in South Africa, if you study psychology undergraduate, this actually is like this many places in the world, you can't do anything with it. It's just theory. You will not be seeing patients um, in psychiatric facilities or clients in private practice after you do an undergraduate in, in psychology. It's just not going to happen. Things like psychology, social work, counseling, they require postgraduate degrees. And medicine is six years, so it's technically a postgraduate degree. You can walk away from all of those qualifications being able to consult with people and work clinically but then you still got to go and get specific postgraduate training and I think that's the difficult part where am I now I I mean I'm on I, I've got a lot of degrees I'm, I'm just one of those people that likes academia um, I really have always enjoyed it but you don't have to have as many degrees as I've gotten to my name but you do have to spend a lot of time and unfortunately the reality is a lot of money unless you're getting a bursary in getting to become a sexologist but there are a lot of different avenues and there are a lot of different foundation kind of to being a sexologist but one of the most important things is that you are doing it reputably you are doing it through recognized institutions and accrediting bodies within the country that you work so i have been accredited by the college of sex and relationship therapists in the united kingdom as well as the uk council for psychotherapists i am an accredited member what that means is i have to jump through a lot of hoops every year in order to meet the requirements and that's everything from how many clinical training hours i do to how many um, clinical hours i have to how many supervision hours i have to signing a declaration of ethical conduct and so on there's a lot of hoops that have to be jumped through in south africa we have the health professions council very strict rules as to what will enable you to register with them uh, in in america there's asect um, the american association of sex educators counselors and therapists i think it is so there are there are lots of different bodies, depending where you are in the world, that you would need to to adhere to their criteria in order to call yourself the sexologist or clinical sexologist or sex therapist and so on. I've had to jump through a lot of those hoops in my life and I'm grateful now that I, I it's just kind of a natural part of, of my practice, but it's a lot of work. So it may sound like a super glamorous job being a sexologist, I'd say I'd say it's not that it isn't it's just that it's 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 a it's not what you you think it is like what you see it 
on TV being like through, you know, the movie Meet the Fockers with Barbara Streisand or even a little bit on sex education with Gillian Anderson. She plays a sex therapist. It's not, it's not, it doesn't look like that. You know, for so many sex therapists or clinical sexologists, we are psychologists or psychotherapists or counselors first and foremost. And then we have just gone and specialized in the field of sex relationships and, and so on. So I hope that helps. It's it's not the most encouraging of uh, answers, but it's the truth. And I think, unfortunately, especially in South Africa, I just speak to too many students who recognize that it's an uphill battle and realize that maybe not it's not the, the battle they want to fight. But I would say we need more sexologists, especially in South Africa. We are a very, very, very small group of people. I mean, I'm, you know, in, in the United Kingdom, I work with a practice called the Thought House Partnership and I love working with them. And it's purely, almost exclusively psychosexual therapist. And that's just in one practice. We don't have that in South Africa. So we need more sexologists in South Africa. We need more reputably trained and accredited people to work in the field. So please don't let the uphill battle discourage you. And I'm always help here to help and, and help uh, guide students who might be interested. So you're welcome to reach out to me. And so that's it. That's it for season four. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, I have got some really exciting things in the pipeline. I'm going to ch change gears a little bit. I'm going to shift shift things around. I'm going to stir things up because there are some things that have kind of become really pertinent to me and and my listeners and my clients that I want to address. And there are certain conversations that I really want to have and I really want to honor and highlight and so in working towards my next season please you know reach out to me tell me what you want me to ask for a friend but um, I'm also really excited to bring you a slight change in tune of how this podcast has gone so far and, and what you've come to expect from it and I think it will be exciting and refreshing. Are you curious about sexuality and want to learn more? Well, you can learn much more from me on several platforms. On my website, you can find short online courses to expand your knowledge, either as a member of the public or as a healthcare provider. And if you want a comprehensive sex education that you really should have had but likely never got, then check out my three-hour class on mymastery.tv where you can buy my single class for as little as 145 Rand or $13. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you could rate and review this podcast so that you can continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics and get the information about sex you should always have had. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform.